Lieutenant General Scott D. Barrier is hereby appointed Director, Defense Intelligence Agency, effective 1 October 2020. This is DIA Connections. I still believe that Russia, with all of its uh, nuclear capability, is the existential threat. But as I view China over the long haul, they will also become an existential threat. This is going to really sound strange, but I, I knew what I wanted to do since I was about six years old. In fact, on my dresser at home right now, I have a plastic G.I. Joe dog tag with uh, my name, a phony serial number, and uh, the address of our very first house. To serve, really for me, is kind of the, the first thing that I think about. It's like, how can, how can we help this country be a better nation? Leadership is really sort of where it sits, and uh, good leaders get good outcomes. And I've always wanted to be a good leader. That's our leader, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And this is DIA Connections. By direction of the Secretary of Defense, Lieutenant General Robert P. Ashley Jr. will relinquish the directorship of the Defense Intelligence Agency, effective 1 October 2020. The change of command ceremony on October 1st, 2020, signified the official start date for Lieutenant General Barrier as DIA Director. Now, with a year under his belt, we thought it'd be a good time to check in and get his thoughts on a myriad of topics. How do we get it back on track in this, in this era of strategic competition and, and these challenges that we face with uh, China and Russia? It's about intelligence advantage, it's about uh, innovation, uh, it's about people, and it's about partners. We had a robust conversation ranging from national security threats to diversity to motorcycles. That's right, motorcycles. Today in my quiver, I have a souped-up Honda CRF250 adventure bike, which is pretty cool. I come from a a family of motorcycle enthusiasts, so I, I don't apologize for that. Before we get to all that, a bit more about the significance of the date I mentioned earlier, October 1st, because that's an important one around here. This year, on October 1st, the Defense Intelligence Agency celebrates 60 years of commitment to excellence in defense of the nation. That mission began in 1961, a truly historic year for a lot of reasons. There was the first man in space. Man had his first great success in space when the Russians pushed a man across the threshold. He was Yuri Gagarin, the astronaut the Russians lionized as the first to orbit the Earth. There was the Bay of Pigs invasion. The assault has begun on the dictatorship of Fidel Castro. Cuban army pilots opened the first phase of organized revolt with bombing raids on three military bases. And there was the breaking of a seemingly unbreakable record. 60 home runs by one player in one season. Held by none other than the Sultan, Sultan of, of Swat. Swat. The King of Crash. The Colossus of Clout. The Colossus of Clout. Babe The Great Bambino. <laughs> Far removed from the sandlot, Yankee Stadium was the place, and Roger Maris was the man. And they're standing up. Waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. Fastball hits deep to right. It's going to be it. Way back there. Holy cow. That historic blast soaked up all the attention and headlines that day, October 1st, 1961. 
But believe it or not, there was a far more significant event that occurred in Washington, D.C. that day, which would affect our country for the next six decades. And that was the day the Defense Intelligence Agency was created. But wait, wait. That's not right. There were no marching bands or cheering crowds. And there wasn't even a mention in the daily papers. And you know what? We're good with that. It's sort of emblematic about how we've gone about our business for 60 years. In 1961, the DIA began with 25 people. Now, there's more than 16,500, and 50% of those are outside the D.C. area, with a presence in over 140 countries. The agency's first director was Lieutenant General Joseph F. Carroll. He served for eight years. Now, the director's terms are limited to just three years, as is the case with Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. So for episode number two of season two, we spoke with number 22, the 22nd director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. That's our intro for Director Barrier, but the really good one came from Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, last year on October 1st, of course. And with Scott, I have known for many years, he's an officer of the highest caliber. He has tremendous operational experience and background in both peace and war with five tours in combat and duty and leadership in conventional and special operations units in all echelons from platoon to company to battalion to brigade, division, corps and at the strategic levels in Korea and in central command in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and in the institution of the Army's intelligence corps leading 58,000 Army intelligence soldiers, and as the G2 of the Army, advising two Army chiefs of staff. Scott will be a director who builds relationships and fosters trust across teams. We might also add his awards and decorations. They include the Distinguished Service Medal, Defense Superior Service Medal, Legion of Merit, and Bronze Star Medal. There isn't a medal for sitting down for a one-on-one with DIA historian Paul Isaacson. Just a big thanks. Sir, great to be with you this morning. It's great to spend some time with you guys. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Anything you want to talk about? Offer accepted. So any moment now, the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee hearing will get underway, focusing on worldwide threats to U.S. national security. The American people will get the chance to hear directly from the country's top intelligence chiefs on several issues, including the latest developments on recent cyber hacks by Russian and Chinese spies. General Barrier, please. Good morning, Chairman Reed. We began by talking about the director's testimony given earlier this year to the Senate Armed Services Committee as part of the annual Worldwide Threat Assessment Hearings. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss the threats facing this nation and DIA's support to the national defense strategy. The nature and scope of the national security environment in which we operate is largely shaped by strategic competition. The The continuous push-pull among the United States, China, and Russia for global strength and influence. What did you mean by that? So we have a China that is rising or a China that has risen, a Russia that, that wants to be a player on the global stage again, and then, you, and then you have the United States. And all of the changes that we have gone through over the last 35 or 40 years, and you, when you think about it, the one thing that China and Russia have that, that we don't have is continuity of government. And, and so if you think about political changes in the United States every four or eight years, That is really a challenge to maintain continuity in policy, to maintain continuity in military strategy, 
and to set a goal and hang with that goal. Americans have growing concerns about the expanding capabilities of the Chinese military. Let's look at some facts. So Russia has unveiled a new fighter jet with the intention of eventually selling it to the rest of the world. People are calling it a direct competitor to the American F-35. NBC News reporter Matt Thon- You spoke of China as a long, the long-term competitor to the United States. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I talked about China as the long-term threat, and I talked about Russia as the existential threat, and and there's a difference, and and the difference really comes down to a competent and effective nuclear triad, which Russia has. China's growing theirs. It's not as competent or as well-developed as as the Russian uh, nuclear triad, and and I think that's a very interesting point. China continues its decades-long military modernization to build an increasingly lethal force that will almost certainly be able to hold U.S. and allied forces at greater risk and greater distances from the Chinese mainland. The Russian military is an I still believe that Russia, with all of its uh, nuclear capability, is the existential threat. But as I, as I view uh, China over the long haul, they will be also become an existential threat. I do think that it merits a very close look for DIA and what we do on monitoring uh, nuclear capabilities of both countries. Earlier this year, the director announced the publication of the 2021 DIA strategy. It represents a culmination of 10 months of analyzing threats, studying agency capabilities, and thinking about the future in an increasingly complex strategic environment. It's his vision for the agency over the next 10 years, as DIA and our nation postures to respond to strategic competition. And it's available for anyone to read on DIA.mil. Sir, I want to talk to you about Afghanistan. First, I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about the loss of the 13 individuals. Just tragic to think that 11 Marines, one sailor, and one soldier lost their lives in the final days of this uh, this non-combatant evacuation operation in Afghanistan. It makes me think of the parents of all those service members and what they must be thinking. But I also think about what the parents of everyone who lost a service member in Afghanistan must be thinking. And that's real loss. Think about the service and sacrifices that were made by those who gave their lives and those who served there, and then think about the context of which that service was rendered. So if you think about uh, 20 years of people getting to operate uh, in a way where they could vote, where kids could go to school, girls were no longer oppressed, uh, where there was an economy that was somewhat functional. We gave them a snapshot of what normalcy could look like. And for 20 years, I think we have a generation of Afghans now that know what something could be better looks like. You know, when you think about it in the context of which the service was given and what that 20 years did for that country and then juxtapose it to a Taliban takeover, it's really a a tough and bitter uh, pill to swallow. And I think we need some time to reflect on that. Thank you. Appreciate your candor on that. Sure. Speaking of the fall of Kabul, it's it's rapid and, and unexpected fall to many. The intelligence community has come under some criticism for that, for not predicting that better or not sharing what they knew about that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks for the question. I have, I have given that a lot of thought. From my perspective now, I think we have to ask ourselves about the underpinning assumptions that we were making 
um, not only throughout the, the 20 years of the conflict in Afghanistan, but also towards the end. What were those uh, key assumptions that we were making? And as you know, um, assumptions underpin all of the analysis that we do. So from my perspective as the director, we, we're going to go back and look at our assumptions and how we were making assumptions. And then how did we communicate those assumptions in our reporting? And so I think that will be a very worthwhile look. And I think it will contribute to the conversation we're going to have going forward about where things went wrong in Afghanistan. Thirteen U.S. service members were killed as a result of the enemy attack while supporting non-combatant evacuation operations. For the Marine Corps, the deceased are Sergeant Johanny Rosario Picardo, Sergeant Nicole L.G., Staff Sergeant Darren Taylor Hoover, Corporal Hunter Lopez, Corporal Dagan William Tyler Page, Corporal Humberto A. Sanchez, Lance Corporal David L. Espinoza, Lance Corporal Jared M. Schmitz, Lance Corporal Riley J. McCollum, Lance Corporal Dylan R. Marola, and Lance Corporal Kareem M. Nicoway. For the Navy, the deceased is Corpsman Maxton W. Soviak. And for the Army, the deceased is Staff Sergeant Ryan C. Naus. We'll be back after a short break. Freedom, diversity, equality, democracy, prosperity, community, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Principles that are the heart of our country. Principles that the Defense Intelligence Agency is committed to safeguarding. Breaking new details about North Korea's missile launch. Russia test firing its new intercontinental ballistic missile nicknamed Satan-2. The international situation is the most complex and demanding that I have seen in all my years of service. We have taken an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We speak truth to power and safeguard the information with which we have been entrusted. We do this to protect the freedoms of all Americans, our allies, and future generations around the world, committed to excellence in defense of the nation, D.I.A. Nestled in America's heartland sits the small town of Spencer, Wisconsin. These days, the population hovers around 1900. When Scott Barrier was growing up and called Spencer home, it was half of that. It's been said that the railroad and lumber mills gave Spencer its beginning. But it was the hardworking farmers that kept it going. It is uniquely settled in Highway 13 between the town of uh, Marshfield and the uh, town of Colby, home of Colby Cheese. So uh, it does have a little bit of popularity up there. Uh, I mentioned there was terrible, it was renowned for terrible traffic jams, right, and long commutes. Oh, no, not, no, not really. No, was, uh, no, no, no traffic jams at all in Spencer, Wisconsin. It was the 1971 award, governor's award winner for the best small town in Wisconsin, right? Is that what you're going to say? No, actually, no, I wasn't going there. That sign is still there, I think. Tell us about what it was like to grow up there. It was uh, really interesting growing up on a farm. My stepfather really didn't know what he was doing. And we sort of bumbled and stumbled our way into, uh, you know, raising hogs and raising cattle and growing corn, uh, wheat and other things. And I would say that he was not successful, 
but I think having that experience on a farm and, and the work ethic that helped uh, build in myself and my brothers was, was probably an instrumental part of my life. And Wisconsin's just a really good place to grow up. Vince Lombardi's passion for perfection made a small community in the Midwest a synonym for team excellence. In Green Bay, Sir, growing up in Wisconsin, can we guess that you must be a Green Bay Packers fan? I am a, a tried and true Green Bay Packer fan. Um, it's emotional uh, for my family. Every year at football season, during all of the games, we're, we're texting each other with uh, what happened at that play, what's going to happen next what the coach is thinking, what the quarterback is doing, but even going back before that, the Green Bay Packers have been part of our family history. My dad uh, went to high school with a guy named Ray Nitschke. He was the toughest guy on the team. Nitschke's pitiless, punishing personality made him seem like the successful result of a laboratory experiment designed to build the perfect beast. So it's been in our life for a long time, and the aura of the Packers has always been a little different, I think, from other NFL teams. They've had a, a very storied franchise history, and it's it's one that's really, really interesting. And, and even in the modern day era that we have today, you know, the drama with uh, with Brett Favre and then the drama with Aaron Rodgers. We'll see where all that goes. I'm hopeful, and we'll see what happens this season. So, you know, in discussing the fun of football and also discussing growing up in Spencer and life on a farm and learning those good things, and those, those good family times, was being in the military something that you always dreamed of from, from being a boy? I mean, how do you see that you're on this path now? Is that, are you on the right path? This is going to really sound strange, but I, I knew what I wanted to do since I was about six years old. In fact, on my dresser at home right now, I have a plastic G.I. Joe dog tag with uh, my name, a phony serial number, and uh, the address of our very first house that we lived in. And so I've, I've kind of known that this would be the path. I didn't know it would be intelligence. I always thought I'd sort of be an infantryman or a tanker or something like that. But this just sort of unfolded in college as I studied uh, Russian and East Central European studies, and they thought that would be a, a good fit for uh, military intelligence back in 1984, and I guess it was. Since you are our new Defense Intelligence Agency leader, can you tell us a little bit about your intelligence background and hopefully why you're a good fit to be our director? At least we hope you're a good fit. Well, <laughs> I, oh, yeah, we hope, we hope I'm a good fit. Now, the, uh, so I, I started out as a uh, career Army intelligence guy. I went to the basic course in 1984, Fort Huachuca, and then had what I would call all the classic intelligence assignments that the Army wanted you to have as a lieutenant, as a captain, as a major, as a lieutenant colonel. Early on, it was about the, the mystique and the mysteriousness of kind of being a soldier and, and what that would mean. I had in my mind this notion early that what we call being Hua and being an airborne ranger was kind of the pinnacle of what I wanted to be. But once I achieved that in the Army, I quickly realized that there's much more to the Army than that. To serve, really for me, it's kind of the, the first thing that I think about. It's like, how can, how can we help this country be a better nation? And I think that uh, leadership is, is really sort of where it sits. I'll take a stab. That sounds like you're a good fit. Thank you. I, well, I appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> when Director Barrier took the helm of the DIA in 2020, he said this. To every member 
of the Defense Intelligence Agency, while I have never been assigned here, I have been surrounded and supported by you for many years. That support came from his family as well, especially from his wife, Annie. Annie is a mission essential to this family and will no doubt remain mission essential as we, uh, as we step into this new challenge together. I love you, baby. Thank you. Annie, as I would call the patrol leader, rock of the family, was, was there leading the whole way and making sure that our sons had a well-grounded foundation to become the men that they have become today. She, without her, I would not be here and I would be nothing. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about leadership. What do you think are the important principles of leadership that you try to follow? Well, it's, it's, uh, you're, you're going to laugh. Annie and I were going through the pre-command course at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. We were, we were in this basement bar on post of this place called Ho Barracks, and Annie and I were the only ones in the bar. And we were working on our uh, leadership philosophy uh, going into command, and we were working on our family readiness group philosophy of what that would be. And we were having this discussion, and, and the bartender, who, who had been there before, and I had, I had recognized her, leaned in uh, as we were having this discussion and said, this is easy, just don't be an ass. <laughs> that short, simple statement has resonated with Annie and I over all of these years of just a, a basic human kindness that you, you don't have to be a jerk to be effective. My own leadership style is, is casual, but I don't like people to take advantage of that, of that casual leadership style. And so I, I've been described as a sunny but firm and I think it's okay. But part of it is, uh, especially in the Army, and when you're dealing with young soldiers, I think I learned early on that leadership at its core is, is about getting people to do things that they normally wouldn't want to do. And so how do you do that? There are really two ways. You could be that jerk, and then people just fear you, or people could do it because they love you and they don't want to disappoint you. And I would suggest building a leadership model where people respect you and don't want to let you down is, is probably where you want to be. Good leaders get good outcomes, and I've always wanted to be a good leader and not somebody that people would run from or someone that people would kiss my ass. Uh, I, I just want people to do the right thing at the right time because they're given good guidance and uh, effective leadership. Can leadership be taught, and how do you teach other leaders? People that say uh, leaders are born, I think that's uh, BS. I've not really known any natural, you know, we say natural born leaders. And, and there, there are folks who have a, a certain level of confidence, uh, whether they got that from their parents or their interactions with friends, they're just extremely confident people. That doesn't make them great leaders. Uh, that doesn't give them uh, understanding of human nature. I, I think the best way to, uh, to train leaders is, is by example. Shortly after becoming the director of the agency, General Barrier made it clear that diversity and inclusion was a high priority. He said, quote, I have always been and will continue to be committed to the fair treatment and equitable treatment for all to make our organization as inclusive as possible. I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on diversity and inclusion. Why do you think that's such an important part of what we need to do here? This question was asked to me by uh, Representative Val Demings. She asked me that question, and I, I looked at her and I said, if everybody looks like me at DI, we're, we're going to lose. We have to have diversity of background, diversity of thought, diversity in general if we are going to get ahead. And, and right now, if you look at DIA, we're, we're just not diverse enough. 
you know, we have to have this this different way of thinking. If we all think alike, you know, we're going to end up with uh, everybody on the, what I call the bus to Abilene. We're all, we're all thinking the same way. We're not asking hard questions of ourselves or of the problems that we're facing. And I, I think it's really important. I think it's one of the most important things we have to do here. That's one of the concrete benefits of diversity, right, is getting different thoughts, getting different ideas. Is that really? Yeah, it's, it's more than having people that just look different. It is more than having people of color uh, we have to have people of color with <laughs> diverse thoughts that, that make us better, that, that we question ourselves and we get through these problems in ways that are innovative, uh, that we have an innovation engine that's driven by diversity. And I, I don't think you can do it if you don't have that. And that helps us become better, more effective as an agency. Well, I think when you have people that are thinking differently about problems, in the same room talking about it. Whatever is being developed in that room is going to be richer, the context will be better, and I think it will deliver a better product and actually it'll create a more fulsome analysis for our country. So we've talked a lot about a few threats. Are there any particular ones that may keep you up at night? The one thing that has given me the worst night's sleep was this notion about China's rise and how that they have acquired information from the West. So if you look at all the Chinese modernization, much of the information that they started with really, really came from their acquisition of information from our clear defense contractors, our Department of Defense networks, and our, our Western partners. And they have had a very effective espionage campaign going on uh, against us and our partners. The other thing that is bothering me, and I know it's on the workforce's mind, are these things that we call anomalous health incidents, AHI, also known as the Havana Syndrome. Remember when American diplomats in Cuba were hearing those strange sounds and then suffered brain damage from some sort of mysterious invisible attacks? There's now a report of an eerily similar incident near the White House last year. They say the so-called Havana Syndrome attacks against U.S. personnel appear to be increasing. Someone, something, some entity out there that is harming our diplomats, our officers uh, in the field with some sort of high energy directed kind of weapon that's having traumatic brain injury like injuries for our officers. I've actually had conversations with our officers that have been affected by this. It's not only them, it's also their families. That turns it up a notch of concern for sure when our family members have been injured by this, uh, this type of activity. All right, well, I think we're, we're sort of through the tough questions, sir. We'd, yeah. like, we'd like to have a little bit of fun. Let's roll it. Little round of favorites and mm -hmm. firsts, if you're ready. Yeah, let's, okay. let's do it. All right, so favorite mode of transportation, and I think I know the answer to this. My favorite mode of transportation really started when I was probably nine years old with my first motorized mini bike on, on the farm in Spencer, Wisconsin. It was a Rupp Roadster. And it, was, uh, it had a, a three and a half horsepower Briggs & Stratton ripcord start engine and uh, mag wheels, and it was pretty cool. And I got the bug then, and it has not stopped. <laughs> you know, I had a similar experience with my, with my cousin in Iowa on a little 80. Is that right? A Honda 80. <laughs> Today in my quiver, I have a souped-up Honda CRF250 adventure bike, which is pretty cool. For those of you out there that are listening to this, you, you'll know that it's a pretty, that's a pretty tame and mild adventure bike. But I've done a few things to it to make it a little peppier, and, of course, I have a... 2002 uh, Road King that I've made uh, all my own. It was a Harley Davidson, but it has many SNS racing components to it now, so it's, it's, it's pretty snappy, and I come from a, 
a family of motorcycle enthusiasts, so I, I don't apologize for that. So I remember you mentioned one town in Wisconsin that was called Colby, but I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite cheese? The most favorite cheese is the deep-fried cheese curd. And I don't know that you can get that anybody, any place but a bar in Wisconsin. So they take cheese curds, they bread them, and they throw them in a deep fryer. Oh my lord, are they delicious? Yeah, sounds like uh, sounds like deep fried mac and cheese. Yeah, it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not good for you. So I mean, if you have a heart condition, you probably want to stay away from it. Right. Tell us about your first paying job. I was a, a grocery clerk at a place called Kohler's Foods in Marshfield, Wisconsin. Yeah, it was a great, it was a great job. Lots of kids who worked in that store, and it was a combination of packing groceries and stocking shelves. And I, and I had that job from the time I was a, a sophomore in high school and through most of college. What's your favorite phrase or motto? I think the motto that I have used here as we've embarked on this journey now for almost a year is, is that uh, leaders move to friction. If there is an area that is unsettled, it's a leader's responsibility to move to that and resolve it. And so I, I say that a lot. I mean it a lot. And I hear, it, I hear it being said more and more in the hallway. So I think it's taking on a life of its own. Tell us about your favorite grandchild. Right now we have our first grandchild. His name is, uh, is Jack. He is already starting to surprise us and impress us with uh, super athletic capability. We are setting him up in, in a way where he is going to be a scholar athlete. I'm pushing him right now towards the military. I've already picked him up a wagon. Uh, he's got a tricycle. Our house is being stocked with toys whenever they come over, so we want his time at our house to be special. Just to reiterate, I asked you about your favorite grandchild because I know you only have one. <laughs> right. We expect that others are going to come, and, and of course, you have an individual relationship with every grandchild, right? Uh, I think there is something special about the firstborn grandchild. At least that's what uh, my grandfather told me, which was my older brother. <laughs> okay. So this is our 60th anniversary of the agency. And as you look ahead to coming decades, how significant do you think the role of DIA is going to be? DIA has had such a unique stance and footing in the Department of Defense these last 60 years, and I think it's only going to continue to grow. The initial thinking on DI was the, the chairman and the secretary in the, in the late 50s and early 60s wanted an independent intelligence view separate from national intelligence and the CIA as to what was happening, and they didn't want the service-centric view, and so thus the stand-up of DI, and I, I really believe that we hold this unique position with the intelligence community. I think it's only getting stronger over time, and, and the good news is we've got the confidence of our current leaders, whether that's Chairman Milley or uh, Secretary Austin. I think they have great respect for the work that DIA does. 2021 is the diamond anniversary of the Defense Intelligence Agency. To learn more about our past and present, be sure to check us out on social media or go to DIA.mil. And please, don't forget to rate, review, and follow DIA Connections. Thanks for listening. <laughs>